Okay, my talk today is called uh, International Justice and uh, Non-Western Cultures, and it's based on a study I did of the Special Court for Sierra Leone. I was interested in the Special Court for Sierra Leone because I wanted to explore what happens when you introduce uh, an international trial, which is largely Western in origin, <coughs> into a non-Western context or culture. And the methodology I adopted was what I call uh, an anthropolitical approach. And what this involved was firstly, whoops, uh, a background reading in anthropology and politics, then a period of uh, courtroom observation and court observation. And I chose in my study to focus on a particular trial, which was the trial of the CDF, or the Civil Defense Forces. Now, this was a civilian militia which uh, helped to restore the democratic government to power in Sierra Leone between 1996 and 1998. And uh, it was a very interesting militia because it was uh, much less well-armed than the, uh, the rebel movement or the military junta, uh, and yet it was able to restore democracy partly because its uh, fighters were imbued by a belief that they were immune to bullets, that they had been rendered immune by special bulletproofing uh, mechanisms. So I felt that uh, this trial would throw these issues of uh, cultural dissonance into very sharp relief. So uh, there's the special court itself. Uh, I also conducted some courtroom observation in the local legal sector, uh, I looked at both uh, chieftain courts, uh, the magistrates' court, usually a bit busier than that, uh, and I also uh, interviewed a few uh, ritual practitioners who sometimes appear in local courts with, uh, this woman is holding a, a fetish or swear, which uh, plaintiffs often are asked to swear upon in court. The idea was that I wanted to get some idea of the local uh, legal context from which witnesses came. Now, this initial background research and observation uh, provided me with some ideas about uh, salient points or patterns, which then I followed up with a, an extended reading of trial transcripts. Uh, I coded and then recoded trial transcripts, and where patterns or themes were borne out by a sufficient amount or quality of evidence, then I factored that into my data analysis and write-up. Now, I want to focus here on uh, three dimensions of that analysis. Uh, the study threw up certain jurisprudential issues, certain procedural issues, and certain normative issues, or problems in the conduct of the trials at the Special Court for Sierra Leone. So I'll talk first about jurisprudential issues. The most striking problem faced by the court, I found in a jurisprudential sense, related to the doctrine of superior responsibility. Now, under international law, superiors can be held responsible for crimes committed by their subordinates, by their subordinates which they fail to prevent or punish. And the essential test of superior responsibility is effective control 
or the material ability to prevent or punish crimes committed by a subordinate. Now, what this test of effective control requires is an effective hierarchy, whether that's a de jure hierarchy or, more recently, uh, in the Celebici judgment, uh, it institutionalized the idea of a de facto hierarchy. Celebici at the ICTY. Now, this jurisprudence has been developed in the West uh, over a context of several hundred years in which hierarchical bureaucratic organizations were gaining in prominence and ascendancy. But in a country like uh, Sierra Leone, uh, it's arguable, it's debatable whether such effective hierarchical bureaucratic organizations have ever existed, let alone in a context of war. Now, uh, Sierra Leone is often said to be characterized by a form of neo-patrimonial authority, uh, and a particularly loose form of neo-patrimonialism at best, under which a patron, leader, or big man rules by virtue of the relations of authority he entertains with other patrons and clients existing in a structure below him. Now, this is a, a triadic relationship then, which incorporates a range of dyadic patron-client relations. So that if a leader wants somebody down the chain of command or hierarchy to do something for him, it's not as simple as issuing a command. Rather, he has to engage in a process of bargaining or favor-giving or exchange with intermediary clients, intermediary patrons and clients. Therefore, the hierarchy is much more difficult to ascertain than it is in a normal Western bureaucratic setting. Now, there's prima facie evidence then that a doctrine like superior responsibility, which might hold well in a Western context, is not going to be very appropriate in a non-Western context, certainly not in a country like Sierra Leone. And I would argue that the evidence at trial uh, actually bore this out. So this is uh, Moinina Fofana, who was the director of war of the CDF, uh, who was putatively in charge of a, a variety of people and allegedly uh, was in command of a man called Albert Nallo, who was the chief of operations. Now, the court found him guilty of the crimes committed by his subordinates on account of a chain of command that ran through Albert Nallo to Kamajor CDF fighters on the ground. However, if you actually look at the testimony, it's very clear that there's, there's no de facto authority of Fafana over Nallo, and there's very little de facto authority of Nallo over the subordinate fighters. And yet the court seemed determined to enter uh, a conviction under this doctrine. Now, if bureaucratic authority is weak in a country like Sierra Leone, then the charismatic component to effective control is, I would argue, much more salient. Uh, charismatic authority is a type of authority uh, distinguished by Max Weber as based on the almost supernatural powers or superhuman qualities of the leader. And alongside Moinina Fofana in the dock in Sierra Leone was this man, Alia Kondewa, the high priest of the, the Kamajors. This was a man who was crucial to recruiting CDF fighters 
by means of the initiation ceremonies he conducted, in which he administered bulletproofing powers to the initiates. Now, the theory of the prosecution was that Alia Kondawa exercised effective control over the Kamajuls by virtue of the mystical powers he possessed. And in fact, a large amount of evidence was led at court which bore this out. Kamajuls would only go to the field if they had these medicines. If they believed these medicines were waning, they would go back to Kondawa for top-up initiation ceremonies. Kondawa would need to bless fighters before they went to war, and if they felt that they were not blessed by uh, Kondewa, they would not go and fight. And in fact, this was uh, reflected in the factual findings of the court, which in its final judgment said that Kondewa, in his capacity as high priest, was in charge of the initiations at base zero, and was the head of all the CDF initiators in the country. The Kondewa's <laughs> believed in mystical powers of the initiators, especially Kondewa, and that the process of initiation and immunization would make them bulletproof. The Kamajors looked up to Kondawa and admired the man with such powers. They believed that he was capable of transferring his powers to them to protect them. By virtue of these powers, Kondawa had command over the Kamajors in the country. Paradoxically, however, they declined to enter a conviction under the doctrine of superior responsibility, arguing that Although he possessed command over all the Kamajors from every part of the country, this was, however, limited to the Kamajors' belief in mystical powers which Kondewa allegedly possessed. This evidence is inconclusive, however, to establish beyond reasonable doubt that Kondewa had an effective control over the Kamajors, in a sense that he had the material ability to prevent or punish them for their criminal acts. Now, what I argue... Uh, in my study is that uh, the court was generally unnerved and unsettled by this testimony about mystical or magical powers and therefore it didn't want to uh, open up an epistemological can of worms by convicting somebody on this basis and so it declined to enter a conviction by using a sort of piece of legal semantics and focusing on the material ability to prevent or punish this acts. But I think this is a great failure of the court because uh, in non-Western societies like Sierra Leone, uh, you often find that uh, charismatic figures such as Alia Kondua, who claim to have supernatural powers, are extremely important in the practice of warfare. So if an international court is actually going to get to grips with the nature of these conflicts and the nature of uh, abuses committed within them, then it ought to have doctrines which are capable of capturing uh, these, uh, these types of people. Okay, I'm going to move on now to procedural issues. Now, um, the Special Court for Sierra Leone could be a, a case study, really, in how to conduct a bad investigation. So all the things that John talked about in his talk this morning, uh, all, the, all the problems which he mentioned uh, cropped up at the Special Court for Sierra Leone. I'm just going to mention one of them which is statement-taking. Um, Sierra Leone is a country where uh, several languages, I think 13 languages are spoken, but in which there is a lingua franca creole, which most people speak, and English, which the educated, uh, the more educated uh, section of the population speak. But um, only about 30% of people in Sierra Leone are literate. So you know, there are larger, large numbers of people who come from an oral culture. Now, in the statement-taking process or the investigations process, what you often had in Sierra Leone 
was an international investigator who spoke English, or actually sometimes uh, French, um, a local investigator who probably spoke English, Creole, and maybe one other local language, but then witnesses who may not speak any of those. So you could have a situation where you had, uh, for example, a witness who spoke Temne being interviewed by a Sierra Leonean and an international investigator, none of, neither of whom spoke that language. So they would maybe find a local interpreter, just drag someone in from the environs, who didn't speak that language, but might speak Creole. So then you would have a translation of Temne into Creole, into English, and then the state would be written, and then that would be retranslated back to the witness. Now, there was ample opportunity for slippage in translation here. And when you got to court, you found very much that the witness's testimony didn't match what they had said in their statements. So very often the defense would try to admit the statements into evidence as a way of impeaching the credibility of the witness. But then they would take the witness to the statement and say, uh, Mr. Witness, is this your statement? And they would say, I can't read, I don't know whether that's my statement. Well, is this the statement was, that was shown to you? And there were no marks on that statement that could identify it as the witness's statement itself. So that none of the witness statements could actually be admitted into evidence uh, as grounds for impeaching the credibility of witnesses. There was no forensic evidence, no photographic evidence, no tape-recorded evidence. Now, this was compounded by the fact that the Sierra Leone culture area is well known or is famous, in fact, in anthropological circles for its uh, secretive institutions. For example, the Poro and the Sande secret societies are initiation societies in which uh, most Sierra Leoneans go through and in which they are taught strategies of concealment and the arts of dissimulation. This is uh, backed up by popular uh, proverbs like tokaf lefaf in Creo, which means that when you first meet someone, never tell them the whole truth. Never tell them everything about yourself. Always keep something back. Don't trust people, okay? Be very circumspect in what you tell them. And the kind of ideals of transparency which we are used to in the West just don't really exist in Sierra Leone. So what you have then is a situation where uh, both at the statement-taking stage and in the court, witnesses are often circumspect, evasive, uh, convoluted and I can give you an example of this it's taken from my book the witnesses claimed that uh, his father was killed by members of the CDF and, and thrown into a burning house and the, uh, the defense are trying to establish whether um, the body was actually later buried in that village because they doubt whether this actually happened so my question, witness, is, is your father buried at the cemetery of the town? I have told you just now that when he was killed, I didn't know whether, and this has been going on for a while, and the judge says, answer the question. Was your father buried in the cemetery in the village? Simple question. We've heard your explanations, but answer that question. It's very simple. I didn't know whether he was buried there. You don't know. I mean, stop answering questions in a twisted manner. You have a cemetery in your village which your council is referring to. You've, see, you've said that when somebody dies in the village, he's buried in the cemetery. Was your father buried in that cemetery? I didn't see him being buried there. You didn't see him being buried there, but was he buried there? <laughs> Whether they buried him there, I didn't see it happen. Carries on with this witness. Uh, I mean, your father, did he ever own a single-barrel gun? 
Whether he had it, I didn't see it with my own eyes. Did he ever go out hunting? Did your father ever go out hunting? Well, even if he went, I didn't know. You were staying at your father's house, is that correct? Sometimes, sometimes I lived there, but I was learning the Quran, so that's where I stayed. Will you answer the question, please? Did you stay at your father's house? And many witnesses, it just carries on and on like this. And it, it means that the, the trial process itself is very time-consuming. It's very laborious. And it's very difficult to sort out whether witnesses are being evasive because their stories are um, untrue, or whether they're being evasive simply because they are unnerved by the ecology of the courtroom. They realize that the defense witness isn't on their side, and so they are fa falling back on strategies of dissimulation and evasion, which they've learned in the general culture. Now, this is made even worse by the fact that witnesses received handsome payments for testifying. At the time of the trial, Sierra Leone was the poorest country in the world, but some witnesses were receiving uh, so-called um, subsistence payments, which amounted to three or four times the GDP per capita. Now, this is uh, plus medical expenses for their families, uh, plus money to pay for labor on their farms back home, and so on. And lawyers reported to me, from both the prosecution and the defense, that you would get witnesses into the witness house, and that they would realize the, the, the witness safe house. And you, they would realize the benefits that were accruing to them. And their stories would become richer and richer over time. You know, it was as though they were in the Big Brother house and they were trying to sort of please the audience by saying whatever it would take to keep themselves useful and keep themselves in that house. And so all of this adds up to a situation where it's very, very difficult to know whether or not witnesses are actually telling the truth. And I would say that the, the body of evidence amassed by the special court is extremely shaky uh, as a result. How much time? Okay, well, there are also normative issues uh, regarding the, the child of enlisting children under the age of 15, because childhood has a very different sort of definition and conceptualization in rural Sierra Leone, and also forced marriage laws uh, which, I, I can't go into this in any detail, but the evidence at court focused on the nature of individual consent to a marriage. Whereas, actually, uh, when you listen to the evidence at court led by experts, it's quite clear that the nature of the, trans the transgressive element of forced marriage in Sierra Leone was that it violated a norm of parental consent. Not that it violated a norm of individual consent, because individual consent doesn't exist in a traditional marriage anyway. Or is not necessary to an individual marriage. And uh, so, to sum up, as I'm running out of time, I'll say that uh, an anthropolitical approach which um, draws on anthropological and political materials, which employs observational methods, can help to anticipate problems with the investigations process. It can help to identify inappropriate legal doctrines and laws. And it can help to anticipate problems with the courtroom procedure and ecology. So I think that the quality of trials, the quality of justice dispensed by the Special Court for Sierra Leone could have been improved by some reasonably simple changes to courtroom to the investigations and to courtroom procedure and process. 
which could have been informed by this type of anthropolitical study. I won't talk about what anthropolitical methods can't do, um, but I'll talk instead about some of the problems that can be posed by anthropolitical knowledge. Because when you delve deeply into the local epistemologies and ontologies, you can sometimes find such a radical culture clash that you can ask whether an international court could possibly deal with, with this kind of dissonance. Uh, I'll give you an example. We've seen Alia Kondoa, the high priest of the CDF. Uh, he was charged with um, uh, crimes against humanity uh, by virtue of the mystical powers he possessed. The defense's uh, argument in the case of superior responsibility was that when Kondoa administered these initiations, the fighters had to take various oaths. Now, some of these oaths were very sort of locally specific in origin, like, you know, don't eat an electric eel and, you know, don't touch a menstruating woman and things like that. But others were more in accord with international law, such as don't harm civilians, for example. Now, the defense argued that the Kamajors believed that if these oaths were broken, then their bulletproofing power would evaporate, and therefore they would be killed on the battlefield. Therefore, they argued that Alia Kondoa didn't have to take measures to prevent or punish human rights abuses by subordinates, mm -hmm. because he had already taken these measures in the form of administering these supernatural oaths. Now, this was an argument which the bench chose to sidestep altogether, because I think that if he had really delved deeply into that, he would have had to open up the question of, uh, did Conde, were these oaths effective? Did Condé really believe in them? What's the nature of uh, power in this society? And it would have been extremely complex for the court. So I can understand why it left it to one side. Um, but if we accept that these kinds of issues are important in this type of cultural context, then it suggests to me that uh, international law may need a radical overhaul and it may require a more pluralistic and dialogical approach, which maybe combines some elements of international criminal prosecution with other areas which have much more of a local resonance. And that's it. Thank you.